Acts chapter 6, starting with verse 7, and this is what it says. The word of God kept spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit which he, uh, with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. And they put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against the holy place and against the law. For we've heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to him. And fixing their eyes on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. The high priest said to him, Are these things so? Richard Warmbrand was a Romanian Lutheran pastor who was imprisoned by the communist government for his faith in Christ. Born of Jewish parents, at one time he was uh, embraced socialism, but after he converted to Christ, he began to teach that Communism and Christianity were actually incompatible. Of course, the government wasn't going to tolerate this kind of dissent, so they arrested him and sentenced him to eight years in prison, three of which he spent in solitary confinement in an underground cell with no windows or light. Now, in his book, Tortured for Christ, Wormbrand tells of the pains that were inflicted upon him by his guards, beatings and burnings, being locked in an icebox for days. He bore scars on his body until the end of his life. Well, after he was released from prison in 1956, they commanded him and ordered him never to speak about Christ again, which, of course, he ignored. So they rearrested him and sentenced him to another 25 years in prison. It was during that time that his wife, also Sabina, was imprisoned. Well, in 1964, Richard Rumbrand was released under an amnesty agreement, after which two mission agencies uh, paid ro- the Romanian officials $10,000 to let him leave the country. He later was invited by the United States Congress to testify before a House committee on the persecution of Christians in communist countries. Now, he may have escaped from Romania, but the Wormbrands didn't forget their fellow Christians left behind. And so in 1967, Richard and Sabina uh, started an organization called Jesus to the Communist World, which they later renamed to Voice of the Martyrs. Well, Wormbrand died back in 2001 at the age of 91, but the organization that he founded, Voices of the Martyrs, is still going strong, working to defend the rights of persecuted Christians around the world. Now, last week, we began to look at the events that led up to the arrest of Stephen. This week, we want to hear the voice of this first martyr as he defends himself before the Jewish council, whose members became so enraged that they murdered him right there. The trial and execution of Stephen. That's what we want to consider this morning. So why don't we pray and get into the text. Our Father and God, I do pray for grace and mercy. I would like this text to inspire us, Lord, to faithfully witness the gospel message, whatever the cost for us, a cost that is rising quite quickly in our country. So bless us to that end, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is a very long text and one we don't have the time to go through verse by verse, But I do want to give you an outline of it and then trace the flow of Stephen's defense, which really functions as an indictment against the unbelief of the nation of Israel and its leaders in particular. 
So what do we see in this text related to Stephen? First thing we have is the charges that he faced. The charges that he faced, and that's chapter 6, 11 to 15. Secondly, the defense that he gave, and that's chapter 7, 1 to 52, the long section. And finally, the price that he paid, and that's 53 to 60. Now keep in mind what we saw last week. Stephen, who was one of the first deacons, had a powerful and effective ministry going on. Not only was the Holy Spirit enabling him to do miraculous healings, but evidently a great number of people were being persuaded to believe in Jesus because of his witness. Well, if you proclaim the truth, the devil's going to stir up people to oppose it. I mean, he isn't going to sit idly by and allow the gospel light to shine into his kingdom of darkness. And so Stephen was witnessing to Christ, and as he was, a number of Jews got into a heated debate with him. We were told in verse 10, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. I mean, if you can't win an argument, what do you do? Well, you smear your opponents. If you can't handle the truth, you counter it with lies. And that's what, just, what Stephen's opponents actually did. It says, then they secretly induced men to say, and this brings us to our first point, the charges brought against them. Verse 11, it says, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came up and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against the holy place and against the law. For we've heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the custom of which Moses has handed down to us. You know, the Sixth Amendment of the United States Constitution guarantees the right to a speedy trial. As a result of the riot that took place at the Capitol back on January 6th in 2020, and there's uh, 950 people were arrested and charged. Two years later, 40 of them are still languishing in jail for their, waiting for their trial dates. Some have been kept in solitary confinement. Does that sound like they're getting the right to a speedy trial? And by the way, once again, where is Ray Epps? Well, Stephen didn't have to languish in jail for months. His trial apparently took place on the same day that he was arrested. What were the charges against him? It says, speaking blasphemous words against Moses, against God, and incessantly speaking against this holy place and the law. Now, in America today, you cannot be charged with blasphemy, but that is insulting God. But it wasn't always that way in the past. According to the Harvard Law Review article that I read, at the time that the Constitution was ratified, most states had anti-blasphemy laws on their books, and the courts routinely upheld them as being compatible with the First Amendment right to free speech. It was only in 1952 that the Supreme Court struck down blasphemy laws. In 1811, John Ruggles was charged and convicted of blasphemy. While he was sitting in a bar shooting off his mouth, he referred to Jesus Christ as a bastard and said that his mother must be a whore. Ruggles appealed his conviction all the way up to the Supreme Court, which came back with a unanimous decision against him. Can you imagine that happening today? A number of Muslim countries have blasphemy laws. People use them against Christians, uh, falsely claiming that they heard them insult Muhammad or burn a Quran. Articles 301 of the Turkish legal code makes it a crime, get this, to insult Turkishness. You can go to prison just for tearing a lira, that's one of their currencies, because it has a picture of Ataturk, the father of their country, on it. Listen carefully, folks. No country allows its gods to be blasphemed. Find out who you cannot insult or criticize in a country, and you know who their true gods are. There's a lot of people today who would have no problem 
with a person spitting on an American flag, but they would be furious if you spit on a rainbow flag. And as a matter of fact, you might get charged with a hate crime for it. Well, these were serious charges leveled against Stephen. It says in verse 15, And fixing their gaze on him, all of them were sitting in the council, and they saw his face like the face of an angel. And the high priest asked, Are these things so? Now, a lot of times when you go to court, what matters the most is not whether you're guilty or innocent, but whether you have a good lawyer or not. O.J. Simpson, the football player who was charged with the murder of his ex-wife, when he went to trial, he hired what was called the Dream Team, some of the greatest and best lawyers in the country. F. Lee Bailey, the man who had defended Sam Shepard, the doctor accused of murdering his pregnant wife. Uh, by the way, that's the Harrison Ford movie, The Fugitive. It was based loosely on that story. Or how about Alan Dershowitz, the man who later on was a defense attorney for President Trump at his first impeachment trial. Robert Kardashian, the father of the famous Kardashian sisters. And Johnny Cochran, if the glove don't fit, you must acquit. Well, Stephen didn't have a high-powered lawyer team defending him, but what he did have was the help of the Holy Spirit, who Jesus promised would give him just the words that he needed at that very moment. That brings us to our second point, the defense he gave. Now, some of the liberal commentators here criticize Stephen's speech and calling it rambling and even incoherent. They point out that he doesn't really refute or even attempt to defend himself against the charges. All he does is give a long recitation of their history, one that every Jew is familiar with. But I think they're wrong on this, because if you go through this, you'll see that he not only subtly defends himself, but more importantly, he turns the tables on them and accuses them of being guilty of the very thing they're charging him with. And one commentator pointed out that he, he skewers their sacred cows, and he does so by looking at the lives and experience of several people in the Old Testament, Abraham, and then Joseph, Moses, and then David and Solomon in the building of the temple. Look at what it says, starting in verse 1 in chapter 7. It says, And he said to them, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham, when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come to the land of which I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him moved to this country in which you are now living. Now hold on. I thought that God was the God of the Jews and the Holy Land was Israel. But Abraham was an uncircumcised Gentile when God called him, living in a pagan land. You mean God's glory can appear someplace other than in Israel and Jerusalem? Canaan was certainly the promised land that was given to Abraham, but did you know he never possessed any more of it than just a burial plot in his lifetime? Indeed, his descendants would not even possess it for another 400 years because they would go down to Egypt and be slaves for generations, which is pointed out in 6 to 8. Of course, we, like Stephen's listeners, know how Jacob and his family ended up down in Egypt. It says in verse 9, the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him to Egypt. Yet God was with him. Hey, doesn't that sound familiar? Somebody being sold out by his brothers for a few dollars? Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? But again, we see that God was with Joseph while he was in a foreign land in Egypt. Evidently, God can call pagans in Mesopotamia and be with slave boys who are in Egypt. And I have to put a piece of application in right now. God can meet you wherever you're at. 
Maybe there'll be people listening to this over the internet or on the radio broadcast, sitting in prison. God can meet you there. Maybe they're in a bad marriage, an abusive situation. God can meet you there. Perhaps they've ruined their lives in many ways, and yet God can still meet them right where they're at. He will take you where you are, but what's wonderful is he doesn't leave you where you are in your sins. Did God stop being the God of Jacob and his family when they were in Egypt? No, of course not. While they were in Egypt, it says in verse 18, they multiplied greatly until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. There's a generation rising up in America who knows nothing of the blessings that Christianity has brought to this country. And we're starting to see the effect of what it means to live in a post-Christian society, aren't we? Well, it was he, this king, who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would uh, expose their infants and they would not survive. It was at this time that Moses was born and he was lovely in the sight of God and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been set outside, remember, in the river, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as his, her own son. Now Moses, the one that God would use to deliver the Israelites from Egypt, wasn't born in the promised land. He was raised in Pharaoh's palace, perhaps heir to the throne. But in verse 23, it says, But when he was approaching the age of 40, he entered, it entered into his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. By the way, he had a lot more to go if he's going to take him this way. And he supposed that his brothers understood that God was granting him deliverance through him. But they did not understand. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, your brothers, don't injure one another. But one of them, who was injuring his neighbor, pushed him aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? You don't intend to kill me the way you killed that Egyptian yesterday, do you? When God sent Israel their deliverer, they rejected him. You see how Stephen is starting to turn the tables on his accusers and he's pointing the way to Christ? Look what it says in verse 29. At this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of a burning thorn bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight and he approached to look more closely. There came a voice of the Lord. I'm the God of your fathers. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are now standing is holy ground. <coughs> Mount Sinai is not in Israel. It's in Arabia. And yet it was here that the Lord said to take off your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are now standing is holy ground. Mecca and Medina are holy cities for the Muslims in Saudi Arabia. Jerusalem is a holy city for the Muslims and the Jews in Israel. Salt Lake City is the holy city for Mormons. But according to this passage, anywhere that God manifests himself to his people is holy ground. Remember when Jesus was talking to that woman at the well in Samaria? When Jesus mentioned her sexual past, she wanted to change the subject pretty quickly. She said, it says, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our, our fathers worshipped in this mountain up in Shechem there. And your people say that Jerusalem is the place that men ought to worship God. Jesus said, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming in when uh, neither on this mountain 
nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Listen carefully. It's not where you worship, but how you worship that matters to God. Is it in spirit or truth? <clears throat> or is it just mindless repetition of rituals that you go through one week after another without any thought? Now, they accused Stephen <coughs> of blaspheming Moses. But in verse 35, Stephen points out, look at it says, This Moses, whom they, <coughs> meaning their forefathers, disowned, saying, Who made you ruler and judge? Is the one who God sent to be both ruler and deliverer, with the help of the angel, who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt, and in the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren. He's speaking of the Messiah. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel and was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers and he received living oracles, meaning the word of God, to pass on to them. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him but repudiated him in their hearts and turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods that will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. And at that time, they made a golden calf. They brought sacrifices to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hand. Now that the temperature is rising and the, the temp tension starting to grow, Moses, the one that they claimed to follow, was rejected by their forefathers. But rather than obey the commands that came from God through him, they rebelled against him and made a golden calf and said, this is our God. And so when they failed to enter the promised land because of their unbelief, God led them back into the wilderness to wander. We read in verse 42, but God turned away to deliver them up to serve the hosts of heaven. I'll stop there for a second. According to Romans chapter 1, one of the judgments that God brings on people who turn away from him is he turns them over to idolatry and false beliefs. After he turns them over to idolatry and false beliefs, they embrace sexual sins, which degenerates into homosexuality. And as you read towards the end of the chapter, it says they become ruthless, reckless, faithless, heartless. Tell me, is that going on in our society right now? We saw the sexual revolution of the 60s. We see the sexual revolution continuing now. Do we not see violence increasing in our society at the very same time? These things are connected. He says that you also took along with you the tabernacle of Moloch, a pagan god, and the star of the god Rampha, images which you made to worship. I will also remove you to Babylon. So Israel may have been the holy land, but the Israelite people were not a holy people, so God sent them into captivity. And as for the temple being the holy place, and Stephen speaking out against it, before there was a temple, it says in verse 44, our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness. The place of sacrifice and the worship of God was originally a tent that could be put up and taken down so it could be moved from place to place. Doesn't that imply, once again, that it's not a particular geographic place that makes a thing holy? Yes, David wanted to build a permanent dwelling for God, and Solomon actually constructed the temple. But God made it clear, even at the construction of the temple, 
At the very beginning, he said in verse 48, The Most High does not dwell in houses made of human hands and prophets, for this is what God said, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house can you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand that made these things? So up to this point in recounting their history, Stephen is showing that what matters is not the particular place you worship, but whether you believe and obey God's commandments. Their ancestors had failed to do this as evidenced by the recorded history. And rather than repudiate the rebellion of their ancestors, these religious leaders were now bringing it to culmination. For at this point, Stephen, going by on his ship, drops the sideboards and he blasts with all 12 cannons. Here's what he says in verse 51. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just what your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you've now become. Their ancestors persecuted and killed those who predicted the coming of the Messiah. And when he finally showed up in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, they conspired to put him to death too. Stephen hadn't blasphemed God and Moses and the law and the temple. They had, by rebelling against God, breaking his law, defiling his temple, and murdering his son. You know, Dale Carnegie wrote a famous book entitled, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Well, evidently, Stephen hadn't read that book because uh, the defendant turned and accused his judges, and he says that he finds them guilty, which brings us to our last point that we see in the text, the price that he paid. The price that he paid. Any of you old enough to remember the announcement of the O.J. Simpson trial. Do you remember where you were when you heard it? I remember exactly where I was. I was in my garage sweeping it out when they came back with a verdict. I was stunned when the court clerk read the verdict and he said this, We, the jury, in the above entitled actions, find the defendant, Orenthal James Simpson, not guilty of the crime in violation of Penal Code Section 187, a felony upon Nicole Brown Simpson. O.J. went free after the verdict was read. Though most people believe that he was guilty, and I'm certain that he was, he paid no price for his crimes. Stephen was innocent, but he received the death sentence and paid with his life. But notice, they never read a verdict, do they? It never got to that point. Instead, we read this. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. Another translation would be stabbed in the heart. And they began gnashing their teeth. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing by the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of God standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and they rushed at him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul, who's going to come into the story later on. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said that, he fell asleep. I mean, you've seen cartoons where the characters get so angry, you know, that, that their face turns red and steam comes out of their ears, and suddenly they blow their stack? Well, that's what happened with these men. 
They were so enraged with Stephen for pointing out the guilt of the death of the Messiah, the blood that was on their hands, that they ground their teeth, they covered their ears, and they charged at him. They took him out and they stoned him to death. Listen carefully. Fallen man hates God. Fallen man hates the Son of God. Fallen man hates the followers of Christ. They hate the truth. And what they hate most of all about God is his grace. When Louise was dying, that's Alan's wife. I was in the hospital room at the time. She was in and out of consciousness. And uh, one of the nurses who was there was a relative of hers, was trying to encourage her. And she leaned down and she said to her, Louise, don't worry, you'll be fine. You've always been a good church member. At the very end of her life, the devil had ranged for someone to whisper in her ear that she should trust in herself and what she had done. I remember I leaned over and said, Louise, trust Jesus and his righteousness. His death is the payment for your sins. And Stephen, he looks up and he sees standing at the right hand of God, the Son of Man, Jesus. By the way, remember Jesus told the religious leaders when they had tried him and had him crucified a few months before this. He said, furthermore, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of glory. Now, it must have brought it back to them. They were so angry that they rushed him. They drag him out of the city. They start to stone him. And the last thing he says is, don't hold this sin against them, Lord. Very similar to Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Faithful to Christ in life, received by Christ in death. Isn't that what you want for yourselves? Stephen died for Christ because Stephen lived for Christ. And Paul said, all who live are desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And as I said earlier, the cost of following Christ is going up dramatically in our country. You bear witness to the truth, even a simple truth, like boys are boys, girls are girls, marriage is between one man and one woman, there are not many ways to God but one. If you do, you're going to be persecuted. But if you don't, you'll have been unfaithful to Christ. Will your faithful testimony cost you your life? Probably not. But if things keep going the way they are, it may. I started with Richard Warmbrand. I want to end with a quote from him. He said this, Not all of us are called to die a martyr's death, but all of us are called to have the same spirit of self-sacrifice and love to the very end that these martyrs had. May God add our voice to the voices of the martyrs. Let's pray. Our Father in God, these days may be coming upon us very quickly. There was a baseball player just in this last week who uh, made a statement that because of his Christian faith, he uh, couldn't support the LGBTQ stuff that was going on. Well, they threatened to drop him, and so he came out groveling and apologizing and saying that he has to learn better, and in other words, he denied your son. Jesus told us he would deny us on Judgment Day if we did that. And the great irony is, Lord, they still dropped him. They fired him. Father, I pray that you'd give us boldness to stand for the truth because we're living in a world of lies. 
We need to shine as light in a world that's getting increasingly dark. And we need to speak the truth to all that we know. So, Father, we pray that you'd give us that grace and that courage, the same courage that Stephen had. So bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.